You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino Placerville, and this time for the Monday edition of KVMR's Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank HBE Rentals since 1994, offering equipment rentals for contractors, homeowners, and businesses. Open daily and reminding listeners equipment rental is an environmentally sustainable option. HBE Rental Information at GoHBE.com. After the NPR headlines and local weather, I'll be speaking with Sam Clower. Sam Clower is 101 years old and is a Pearl Harbor survivor, and he's going to talk to us about Pearl Harbor and more. We'll also have National Native News and a commentary with Jim Hightower. At 6.30, we'll be broadcasting Disability Rap, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines, followed by regional weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. Congress is working towards a Friday deadline to pass a spending bill that would avert a government shutdown. As NPR's Windsor Johnston explains, the leaders of the House and Senate have been discussing the possibility of attaching the next round of coronavirus relief funding to that measure. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell continues to push what he calls a more targeted relief package to address the most pressing issues amid the worsening pandemic. Small business aid, re-upping unemployment aid, and setting up vaccine distribution would pass the Senate in a landslide. A targeted compromise on the most urgent items would pass by a massive bipartisan margin. McConnell and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi are still discussing a roughly $900 billion bipartisan bill. It includes additional federal aid for small businesses and extra weekly unemployment benefits. It does not include another round of direct payments for eligible Americans. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Health officials in California say they're rolling out a new smartphone tool that will help alert people if they spend time near a person who's tested positive for the coronavirus. Governor Gavin Newsom announcing the plan today as cases there have been soaring in recent days. 30,000 cases reported there Sunday alone. Dr. Mark Alley is California's Health and Human Services Secretary. We know that this, these various restrictions are a hardship for people. It's not what we expected uh, at this time of year. Officials say people in California can opt to begin using the tracing tool later this week. There are lockdowns taking effect in parts of the state with the threat of more to come if conditions there worsen. States are looking for any way to help hospitals maintain staffing amid the nationwide surge in coronavirus cases. Blake Farmer of member station WPLN in Nashville reports several states are working directly with nursing staffing companies. Early in the pandemic, nurses and doctors could travel to pitch in wherever needed, but Dr. Wendy Long of the Tennessee Hospital Association says that's no longer a simple solution. Now you have so many states who are experiencing this at the same time. Those staffing agencies are are having difficulty. Some are offering nurses as much as $8,000 a week. Several states, including Texas, Tennessee, and Missouri, are hiring health care workers to place where they're needed most. Tennessee also waived some rules so paramedics and medical assistants could work under the supervision of a nurse. And the National Guard has been authorized to work inside Tennessee hospitals. 
For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. In a sign the coronavirus continues to wreak havoc, next year's World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, will not be held in Switzerland. In fact, it will be held in Singapore. On Wall Street, stocks mixed today. The Dow down 148 points to 30,069. The Nasdaq was up 55 points. This is NPR. The family of famed children's book author Roald Dahl has apologized for anti-Semitic comments he made during his lifetime. Dahl, who died in 1990, wrote such beloved books as The Witches, James and the Giant Peach, and Matilda. But as NPR's Andrew Limbong reports, he was also known for making anti-Semitic remarks to the press. The statement, which was quietly posted in a hard-to-find corner of the Roald Dahl Story Company's website, said the Dahl family deeply apologized for the lasting hurt of the British author's statements. Quote, those prejudiced remarks are incomprehensible to us and stand in marked contrast to the man we knew and to the values at the heart of Roald Dahl's stories. In interviews with the British press, Dahl referred to what he called the Jewish-controlled media and traits in the, quote, Jewish character, even going so far as to tell The Independent in 1990, quote, I've become anti Israel and I've become anti-Semitic. In a statement posted Sunday, a spokesperson for the campaign against anti-Semitism said the apology should have come much sooner, but the fact that it was made at all is an encouraging sign. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. The Virginia Military Institute has removed a prominent statue of Confederate General Thomas Stonewall Jackson. Just before 10 a.m. this morning, a crane plucked the statue off its base and slowly hoisted it to the ground at the Public Military College in Lexington, Virginia. Founded in 1839, VMI is the oldest state-supported military college in the U.S. Jackson was a professor there before joining the Confederate Army to fight in the Civil War. Critical futures prices after some recent gains lost ground. Oil down 50 cents a barrel to end the session at 45.76 a barrel on the New York Mercantile Exchange. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. And taking a look at the weather. First, here in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, looks like a Low of 53 tonight, high of 67 tomorrow, sunny tomorrow, and mostly sunny Wednesday through Friday with, this is good news, likely rain Saturday through Tuesday of next week. In Sacramento, low of 38, high of 65 tomorrow, mostly sunny all week with highs in the mid-60s through Saturday. And in Truckee, low of 14, high of 52, sunny tomorrow, Partly cloudy through Saturday with rain and possibly a little snow on Sunday and Monday. Highs are in the upper 40s. I'm speaking with Sam Clowers. Sam is 101 years old and is a Pearl Harbor survivor. Today is Pearl Harbor Day, December 7th. Pearl Harbor happened 79 years ago. Another little detail here is Sam Clowers is also my uncle, known in, known in the family as Uncle Earl. So if I Call you Uncle Earl from time to time in the interview, Sam. It's just because that's what I'm used to. Uh, welcome to KVMR Radio. Yeah. So this would be the 79th? 79th. 79th. Earl, you were you were in the uh, uh, Army, were you at the time? Yes. And uh, tell us about how you actually got to Pearl Harbor uh, and how you were assigned there. Well, I volunteered to go in the service in uh, 1939, 
and I went to Hawaii in 39, and uh, so therefore I was assigned to 19th Infantry, 24th Division, Headquarters Company, as a young GI, and uh, of course I had a lot to learn. I'm like all young GIs, uh, you had to, to respect your elders and your, uh, as you know, even though we don't realize it, the, a lot of the uh, first sergeants and the older men in, uh, in, in the Army at that time were World War II people. They'd been, I mean, World War I people, rather. And they had stayed in the Army and made it a career and then raised families and they lived on the post and uh, with their families and sent their kids to school on the base and raised their families and, and uh, chose to seek that career. Was it a concern that the Japanese might invade Pearl Harbor or, or to you and your fellow soldiers did it come as a total surprise? It was, it was a total surprise. Let's back up and say, though, that one year prior to Pearl Harbor, uh, our regiment went on an alert, and we moved out into the field and set up our weapons and our field artillery, everything, because there's a rumor that the Japanese were in the North Sea. It wasn't just a rumor, it was a fact. They were maneuvering up in the North Sea, and uh, so therefore the uh, Army, uh, realizing that, went on a, a, what they call yellow alert, as well as one year prior to the attack. So it wasn't then a total surprise? No, it wasn't a total surprise. It was a total surprise that they, they did it, but... Uh, uh, we, uh, the military had uh, more or less realized that uh, we, the Japanese at that time were not our friends. They were our enemy at the time. And uh, where were you the actual day of uh, uh, the attack? On the actual day, it was on December the 6th, which was a Saturday, uh, our company went on alert. I was chosen as a leader of a group of people, and we went up to Wheeler Fields, which was east part of Schofield Barracks, and his water reservoir. And we went on alert and put our guards out and was uh, looking forward to sabotage. We didn't... The intent was to preclude the, the local Japanese from uh, putting poison in our water or, or causing uh, other problems because they, they, uh, they were well known to have uh, associated themselves with many activities within the Pearl Harbor, within the area, because... They were all fishermen. We had little sampans, and they were taking uh, GIs out on the sampans and, 
and uh, with the idea of taking them fishing, and their actual intent was that uh, they would uh, try to take information that would uh, help them in the future. Well, Earl, the day of Pearl Harbor, what was the first first thing that alerted you that this was an attack? On that morning, on December the 7th, we got up for uh, our people up at 6 o'clock in the morning and alert all out on the tarmac to feed them our breakfast. And as we were out there getting our breakfast, we looked up and we saw this flight of aircraft coming in from the north. And our comment was, well, there's the, our boys, they're out on patrol. They'll be back and go be going, uh, playing golf, and then we'll still be on duty until noontime. And so this was our thought. And, uh, and, and at 9.55, that turned into an actual attack. The, those planes that were coming in from the north bombed Pearl Harbor, made the circle and bombed Ava and other places, and came back and destroyed Wheeler Field, which I was assigned to, and destroyed the field. So, Earl, you weren't actually there. You were up on the hill, kind of around the corner from Pearl Harbor, so to speak. When did you actually uh, go down in, into Pearl Harbor itself? About a week after the attack, uh, the, I was appointed as a first sergeant of the organization and my uh, company commander asked me to, to follow, go with him, and we went down to uh, Pearl Harbor and, uh, and uh, looked at uh, Pearl Harbor and, uh, and Honolulu that they, uh, to look at the damage that had been created. And there were over 2,000 American casualties, correct? Yes, yes. Uh, friends of yours? Many of them were, yes. Yes. And now here we are, 79 years later. And um, uh, Sam, I'd uh, like to inform our our listeners, you are 101 years old. Um, my uh, my uncle. <laughs> so I'm just so proud of you. And uh, uh, I'm getting all kind of kind of uh, broke up here. But um, uh, Sam. Uh, how many Pearl Harbor survivors are, are left in California? Very, very few. I know of uh, one up in Grass Valley. I know of two, uh, three in the Bay Area, and I know of about three that's down in the L.A. area. So we're talking maybe uh, uh, a dozen at the most. And, and they're all, all of them are uh, 100 years old or 101. And uh, at one time, you were kind of the uh, kind of head of the Pearl Harbor Survivors Group in California. Is that correct? Yes, I was state chairman for Pearl Harbor Survivors Group for eighteen years. And uh, and you're still here. And I'm still here, uh, Sam. When Pearl Harbor Day comes around every year, uh, how does it make you feel? Well. Uh, naturally, you, you have a, a reminiscence of the what happened, and, and you realize that uh, uh, you are a victim of circumstances, and, 
there's nothing you could have done about it. Uh, we were uh, up on this uh, point and up above Wheeler Field, and it was bombed and, and destroyed the field. And, and uh, uh, the only thing we could do was to, uh, protect the uh, area from uh, the sabotage of uh, somebody coming along and poisoning the water or, uh, or doing things like that. And then, of course, after the attack, uh, we went on a yellow alert, and we had troops all along the coastline uh, watching for uh, submarines and uh, so forth. And uh, in the event that they might have decided that, uh, to invade by submarine, which they did not, but they could have. So, Sam, what was your? Can you just give us an idea of, of what your military assignments were after Pearl Harbor? Yeah, I was first sergeant of the company. Uh, I had uh, I, I was the youngest first sergeant of my regiment, and I was first sergeant of my company. And I, uh, we moved out into the field and set up the field to train and prepare our people for eventually going to, into the South Pacific. And and where were you assigned later? Uh, first, we went to Australia and then to New Guinea and then back to the States. You were not somebody who was drafted into the war. You were there before it started. That's right. Sam, another thing that you've made me aware of is you – are recovering from the coronavirus at the age of 101. How are you doing? I feel uh, not too strong. I don't have any appetite at the present time. And my food is, uh, uh, I have to choose what I eat and try to eat an appropriate amount of food to keep my strength up. And, uh, other than that, that's about all I can do. I don't have to. I'm on regular medication I've been taking for years that that had nothing to do with the virus. But uh, the uh, the test that I have to take is every day they take an oxygen test. They take a, uh, uh, my uh, heartbeat and my temperature and all those things, which I record and, and from out of record. And so far, even though uh, my children are in the hospital, uh, I had no problem whatsoever with any of these problems. I, I still don't have any problem with them. So the important thing is you're not in the hospital. You're really recovering from the virus. Yes. And, of course, you don't get to see anybody. <laughs> That's another thing. No, I can't see anybody. They tell me that in uh, six more days they're going to test me again, and then I might be able to see somebody. And you're in a uh, assisted living facility at this time. Yes. And you do get to talk to your your sons, my my cousins, and my um, and you guys. You, you all talk pretty regular, I understand. Yes, I talk to them all on the telephone. They're the ones that told me where you were. So, well, Sam, uh, what are some thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with about Pearl Harbor? Uh, you've uh, very articulate about it, and you still are. And as being one of the one of the survivors, you have a unique experiences to share. Can you can you give us some thoughts? The only thought I'd have 
is that our nation realized later on what had happened, and of course there was a lesson learned too late. But the fact that uh, we prepared ourselves for the invasion of other areas within the South Pacific, and then of course in Europe, and uh, Pearl Harbor became the uh, motto of uh, we used to say, "Let's remember Pearl Harbor." Well, Uncle Earl. I hope we have many more discussions. We'll do this every year, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, thank you, thank you so much for for speaking with KVMR. Thank you for remembering us. You bet. I've been speaking with my uncle Sam Clower, who is a hundred and one years old and is a survivor of Pearl Harbor and the COVID virus. I'm Paul Emery for KVMR. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes in northwest Montana are participating in a national pilot project to improve coordination between agencies investigating missing and murdered indigenous persons cases. Yellowstone Public Radio's Caitlin Nicholas reports. The U.S. Department of Justice recently developed protocols for federal, tribal, and state law enforcement to work together more efficiently which the CSKT will adapt into a tribal community response plan that's specific to the Flathead. Craig Couture, the CSKT police chief, says this plan will help when investigations cross jurisdictional lines. It gives us each a piece of this puzzle to put together, where we have input on how we're going to do this. So when we come together, it's going to be seamless for the handoff on who's going to be the lead jurisdiction. If it goes into multiple jurisdictions, who follows up on that? It gives us a better opportunity to solve these cases and to bring some of these people home. CSKT Chairwoman Shelley Fiant says the Tribal Council met with federal, state, and tribal agencies on Tuesday to start adapting the DOJ's protocols to fit the community. Fiant says the CSKT were motivated to participate after one of their own, Jermaine Charlo, went missing in 2018 and has yet to be found. So we're very excited to roll up our sleeves next week and start working on these guides And these guides are designed to be versatile enough to fit into each individual tribal community. After working with the CSKT in the coming weeks, the DOJ plans to go through the same process with other Montana tribes. I'm Caitlin Nicholas. Wisconsin's Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Task Force met virtually for its first meeting Friday to begin work. The task force is seeking to address abduction, homicide, violence, and trafficking of Indigenous women. The group's identifying solutions and gathering data. Tribal representatives, elders, law enforcement, judges, and state leaders are among members of the task force. There will also be opportunities for public participation through work groups. Updated public health emergency orders go into effect Monday on the Navajo Nation as the tribe sees a surge in COVID-19 cases. Stay-at-home orders are extended. 57-hour weekend lockdowns are being re-implemented, and essential businesses will only be open on weekdays from 7 to 7. The updated orders come days after Navajo-area Indian Health Service medical and health care providers say the tribe's now in a major health care crisis. During a virtual forum last week, health officials pleaded with the public to stay home and take precautions to help reduce the surge in new COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations. 
Dr. Loretta Christensen, Chief Medical Officer for the Navajo Area IHS, says hospital resources are stretched thin. We assure you that we will provide the best quality care possible, but if we all don't stop COVID, we will run out of beds, we will run out of nurses, and we will run out of supplies. So we're asking each and every one of you today to help us. Please don't travel. Please don't gather or attend any events. Please wear your mask, and this includes with your family. You need to continuously wash your hands or use hand sanitizer, and you need to socially distance everywhere you go. As of Sunday, the number of positive COVID-19 cases reached 17,915. The Navajo Area IHS has reported nearly all ICU beds are at full capacity, and they have limited resources, including oxygen, medical staff, and few options to transport patients to regional hospitals because they're also near capacity. Navajo health professionals and tribal leaders say the second wave of COVID-19 is more severe than what the tribe saw in April and May. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. You're listening to Community Supported Radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino, Placerville, and this is the Monday edition of KVMR's Evening News. KVMR's news program airs Monday through Friday, 6 to 6.30 p.m. Coming up at 6.30 this evening, after the news, we have this week's edition of Disability Wrap, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Closing out today's newscast, we have Jim Hightower with a commentary. Gosh, our treasurer-in-chief has really been busy lately, calling Kamala Harris nasty and calling our post offices a joke. But instead of trash-talking, shouldn't a president be, you know, running the government? Nah, that bores him. Besides, that's why he packed his cabinet with all those corporate lobbyists who are skilled at trying to rig our government to serve moneyed elites. Now, empowered by Trump, these special interests are our government, literally setting and running America's economic, environmental, health, and other public policies. And what a job they're doing on us. Check out Andrew Wheeler, head of Trump's EPA. He had been the top lobbyist for a coal mining giant, constantly fighting environmental rules to make this notoriously foul industry clean up its act. Now, the Befowler's lobbyist is making the rules, allowing big coal and other fossil fuel giants to pour more toxic contaminants into our air and water. Wheeler wails that his poor multi-billion dollar former clients must be freed from burdensome requirements to limit the damage they do to the health of America's people and our planet. Burdensome? His latest edict frees oil and gas corporations from having to fix methane leaks in their wells, pipelines, etc. Fixing leaks is burdensome? Hello, if you had a gas leak at your house, would you not want to burden the company to come fix it? 
Not only is methane a potent greenhouse gas causing climate change, but Wheeler's don't worry about it favor to his industry buddies comes just as scientists have discovered that methane leaks are two to three times worse than his EPA has been reporting. This means the industry is driving us toward a climate crisis faster than anyone realized. This is Jim Hightower saying, talk about nasty. The Trumpeteers have turned government totally bass-ackwards, protecting polluters instead of people. Hightower's commentaries are brought to you by the Hightower Lowdown, the monthly newsletter with Hightower's take on what Wall Street and Washington are up to. For information, visit HightowerLowdown.org. That's our newscast for this evening. KVMR's evening newscast airs Monday through Friday, 6 to 6.30 p.m. If you've heard something on this newscast you'd like to hear again, you can go to our website at kvmr.org where you can download audio or listen on demand. Coming up next, we have this week's edition of Disability Wrap and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. For KVMR's news team, I'm Paul Emery. Have a good evening.